The Scream Kings are in no way responsible for any encounters with the paranormal, extraterrestrial abductions, eldritch insanity, hauntings, curses, hexes, demonic possessions, cryptozoological sightings, or any loss of sleep that may result from listening to this podcast. This is the Scream Kings podcast. This is Max George. And I'm Nathaniel Darkish. And I'm Brett Odom. Come listen to us, the children of the night. What podcasts we make. Okay, well, I guess first things first, you listening at home heard that we have a wonderful guest today, Brett Odom. Uh, so, Brett, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Talk about maybe how you found out about Scream Kings and, and why you're here? Uh, well, I found out about it through being friends with Max. I am a, I am a PhD student in political science, but a classic movie buff, because you have, have to watch something to uh, cope with the terror that is grad school. Uh Far scarier than any movie, let me tell you. But uh, classic movies and are my jam, and I am particularly a lover of the classic horror and early suspense films, way back in the classic Hollywood and silent errors. And so that is how I got harangued to come on here. All right. And then, I guess, along those lines, what are some of your favorite horror movies or just kind of favorite horror media in general? It doesn't have to be the classics, but it can be. Yeah. No, I, I am, like I said, I'm a huge classic movie buff, so like, I'm not like a straight up horror guy. I like suspense films, so the older, uh, some of the older films that still have that real good suspense quality are some of my favorites in the genre. Uh, uh, Dracula and the Wolfman are just classic monsters. Gaslight is still one of the best suspense movies you'll ever watch in any age. Contemporarily, uh, Silence of the Lambs is uh, one of my favorites. All right, awesome. Silence of the Lambs is a favorite of the podcast. We absolutely adore that show. And I may be staring at a Hannibal Lecter pop figure right now. Uh, make sure he's been fed. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's okay. He has the mask, so he can't really. Oh, buy. good. Good. So for today's podcast, we kind of wanted to do something a little bit different where Halloween is just around the corner. Or if you're a purist, Sam Hain. Or any of the other Halloween names that you can think of. All Hallows All Hallows Eve. Jinx. We wanted to take it back a little bit and kind of talk about some of the origins of the classic monsters. Which is why we brought Brett along here for this podcast. Is because a lot of these monsters started as movies, really. Which have now created a myriad and myriad of other movies. Which some are fantastic, some are not. Absolutely. And and I mean, I guess a lot of them started out as books, to clarify, and then became early films and then have been adapted and readapted true, and re readapted. So, uh, yeah, definitely a lot of the big uh, roots of the horror genre, especially in film, uh, are going to be you know firmly found in uh, the movies we're talking about today. So... I guess just to kick things off, uh, Brett was going to talk about Nosferatu. 
Yeah, and uh, picking up on that theme, uh, you really do see uh, how the movies affected our perception of these monsters with uh, Nosferatu and later Dracula. Just in the ten years there, you can see the change that cinema is, is rotting is, uh, to these characters or creatures. Uh, Nosferatu is the 1921 silent film classic uh, directed by F.W. Murnau, starring Max Schreck as the uh, uh, as the titular uh, Nosferatu, uh, named Count Orlok. This is a unlicensed adaptation of Dracula, which is really the birth of what most of us think of the modern vampire story. When you put it into the context of this film, though, it was made in post-war Germany. Uh, it's the only film this studio ever made. Uh, and so you get a lot of expressionist, dark romantic, lots of establishing nature shots that, shots that make everything seem creepy. A really grotesque monster who rises out of the crypt. Uh, this is not like we will see 10 years later from Bela Lugosi, a suave and gentlemanly vampire. This is a monstrous creature still. Uh, because uh, a, lot, a lot of people are familiar with the Dracula story. In this movie, though, because it's an unlicensed adaptation, all the names are different. So Dracula is Count Orlok. Jonathan Harker is named Hutter. Mina is Ellen. Uh, they're it's into Van Helsing in this movie. Uh so it's 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 its own unique it's its own unique story while still feeling a lot like Dracula. In short, it starts the way it always does. A uh, young man is sent off to Transylvania uh, to finalize a property deal with Count Dorlock. Uh, the villagers are terrified, and the idiot goes anyway because he has to go finish the property deal, despite the fact that everyone is telling him he's do doing a deal with a vampire. Uh, he finds a book. And that's where the exposition in the movie, in the silent film, comes from. He reads the book, and it tells him all about the terrifying monster uh, that awaits in the castle that he has now walked into. Is it a terrifying monster, or is he just misunderstood? Oh no, he's terrifying. He's, uh, and that is like one of the cool things about this film. It's 1921, but Count Orlok is still creepy as hell. Yeah. Uh, the way Max Shrek very intentionally and very deliberately moves slowly, like a living corpse, uh, something that's reflected in a lot of the early vampire portrayals. Uh, and then because it's got, you've got this very strong German expressionist influence, every, all of his features have been very elongated and uh, made into monsters, although it does look like his fangs are like little toothpicks sticking out of his mouth. It's 1921. <laughs> what can you say? Uh, yeah. But... There is this iconic scene, though, where it's, it's like, yeah, it's 1921, so do all the horror thrills uh, hold up like they do today? No, but there's this iconic scene where Orlok has, he's made the property deal, Hutter is in the castle, and just kind of realizing what's going on, and Orlok reveals himself in his full, terrifying monster, just slowly proceeding toward the hall, basically terror, just just playing with his food, really. Uh, just tormenting Hunter with the demonic nature that is him, and he just moves down this hallway in slow motion, but ever inching closer. The door swings open on its own. It's it's creepy as hell. All the while back home, Ellen hit Hutter's wife is like having these nightmarish visions of her husband uh, and his fate. He does fortunately escape because Orla goes off to Germany to this house that he's bought. Uh, Hutter returns home. 
Orlok has brought the plague with him. People are dying. People are being victims. But Ellen realizes from reading the book that Hutter had that a pure a woman who is pure of heart can distract the vampire with her beauty and therefore seduce him out of his coffin until daylight breaks, which will kill him. And that's exactly what happens. She sacrifices herself, makes herself vulnerable to Orlok, who can't resist the pure maiden that is Ellen. And uh, while he drinks her blood, he realizes the sun has come up and he dies. Uh, Hutter embraces his wife as she dies, and the movie ends with the smoldering ruins of the vampire. Those crafty women and their curves. <laughs> well, it's it's such a... Con- this movie, in a lot of ways, the basic elements of the Dracula story are there that we think of from the book and from the 1931 movie with Bela Lugosi. But Ellen is probably the biggest difference in the movie in a lot of ways because she has real agency. Like, she makes this decision where Mina, in most, in uh, at least in the other classic era vampire movies, she has no agency. She's just there to be preyed on by Dracula. But Ellen here, she strikes the killing blow against him by sacrificing herself. Uh, yeah, that's definitely very uh, forward-thinking, uh, especially for that time period. Yeah, it's, it's both forward-thinking and not, because what it's coming from is this German expressionist, dark romantic perspective where beauty was pure. It was a reflection of, of the inner self, just like Orlok is a terrifying demonic creature and it is reflected in how he looks, this iconic uh, d- demon they created for the movie. Uh, so it's really a very old-school notion of beauty that uh, this, like you see, would see back from, you know, way back, way back in the early 1800s with the uh, with the romantics. But with uh, so, but whereas that's a kind of a good place to transition from it. You skip ahead 10 years, and beauty's no longer the defining feature of the good characters. It's the defining creature of Dracula. You see this transition in the movies here from these two films from the vampire is monstrous to the vampire is seductive and that's you know you can just extrapolate from there to twilight uh vampires become hot and sexy and desirable but unlike Ed- unlike edward these vampires are not redeemable these are villains uh they are evil uh dracula in either movie is evil there's not a redeeming bone in his body. The difference is, whereas he's killed by beauty in Nosferatu, when you look in Dracula at Bela Lugosi, as I'm transitioning here, Bela Lugosi's Dracula is hides behind beauty. Beauty is something that is seductive and deceptive. Uh, so, very big transition there in the themes. And part of that has to do with the thirty. With the movie in 31 is uh, it's ba- it's we're moved from a German film to an English film. Uh, it is based on a play that is based on the book, uh, and of course it stars, pardon my language, but Bella fucking Lugosi. <laughs> man is a leading man, he, he's got those Hungarian good looks, he was a leading man before this movie, which typecasted him as Dracula. He's just... And plus those eyes. Oh, those eyes, he's just gorgeous. Like, there's a reason he's seductive. It's Bella Lugosi, of course you'd be seduced by him. But like like Max Schreck did, he gave his his portrayal. You still see this very notion of the vampires as living corpses. Everything Bela Lugosi does is very deliberate. It's very slow. 
even the way he speaks is very slow. Like he famously greets uh, Renfield at his castle, one of the opening scenes, and says, I bid you welcome. I am Dracula. Everything he does is that kind of slow, measured dialogue. And it's also, and the, it's the definitive portrayal. Every single Dracula movie you have seen since this movie is is standing in Bela Lugosi's shoes. They're all just trying to interpret him, th the character, through the uh, through the lens of Bela Lugosi. Uh, you can even see that in the 1990s movie that tried to be more closer to the book. Even then, a lot of it is you can just say, "Yep, that's that's Bela Lugosi," and it's. And part of this has to do with this is now Hollywood taking over the character. This is Hollywood meets theater, whereas the earlier one was still part of that German expressionist movement in the silent film era. The same thing that gave us very other creepy films like The Golem or The ca uh, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which are these other very creepy suspense films uh, from the silent era. Uh, they, uh, they really relied on a lot of those same techniques. Uh, the Dracula story is very similar. It, in Dracula to Ren, uh, to uh, Nosferatu, uh, but now we've got some extra characters, and the story gets filled out to more of what we think of often when we think of the story. Uh, a man named Renfield, instead of Harker, uh, or instead of uh, instead of our main character, Renfield goes off to complete the lease, and he, unlike the main character Nosferatu, he doesn't make it out of this one piece. He is bitten and he is bitten and succumbs to Dracula. He becomes Dracula's hypnotized servant, practically. A vampire himself, but one who only wants to prey on small lives, and he's been promised by Dracula that if he will help him, Dracula will guarantee that he has small lives to feed on. Yeah, and that that does, to clarify, that does pull from the original book, um, but it kind of rolls his character and Harker's characters together. Yeah, and uh, that's something, and it's, uh, yeah, and something you see more in the 90s movie where they really did a better job of pulling this apart whereas harker in this dracula movie he never gets anywhere close he he's only in the story in london uh so everything that happened in the castle gets molded up um bottled up into renfield uh, but this is i mean from from this moment uh, dracula is creeping out renfield like i said the i bid you welcome this is the famous he hears how and goes listen to them Children of the night, what music they make. And tells him that the blood is the life, Mr. Renfield. These are all cre these these are all semi-cheesy lines because they're famous now, but they're still creepy the way he delivers them in this haunted castle filled with spider webs. It's like you just know that this is bad this is a bad place and Renfield is in for a bad time. And indeed he does. Uh like I said, Renfield is completes the purchase and only to get the fangs himself becomes a vampire they arrive in london uh on a ship that dracula has killed the whole crew of that's actually done explicitly in nosferatu and this happens all off screen here in dracula all that's left is renfield laughing maniacally with this really bizarre and creepy laughter as they find him <laughs> i'm doing my best impressions here just just roll with it uh <laughs> it was beautiful thank you uh but this is where the story begins to take form again is they get to london dracula is now like ah fresh meat uh he pray uh this is where you get the famous uh dracula killing the flower girl scene uh dracula meets 
our cast of characters, Dr. Seward, who owns the Insane Asylum, his daughter Mina, her fiancé Harker, their friend Lucy. Lucy promptly is killed by Dracula. Uh, and then, but all these characters who in, who in Nosferatu in the book are more confrontational with Dracula, uh, it's really only Van Helsing in this movie who takes, takes full stage as Dracula's opponent, and he arrives after Lucy's death as our exposition machine, telling us what's going on, what is a vampire, and all those things. And around this time, Mina starts to have nightmares, and the bite marks appear, and it becomes clear that Dracula is feeding on her. Harker, her fiancé, is an idiot, and in constant denial of what is going on, despite everything, and tries to take Mina away. But Van Helsing uh, has quickly realized that it's Dracula, since he does not appear in a mirror. Uh, you get these iconic scenes where Dracula and Van Helsing square off against each other. Uh, this is where you get the full the full eye effect, where Bela Lugosi famously raises his eyebrows to try to hypnotize his victims and uh, tries to force Van Helsing to come to him, and Van Helsing has a strong mind and resists. Uh in the end, you get to the to you get to the uh, climax where Dracula takes Mina. He wants to make her a vampire like himself, a new bride. Uh, the Scooby Gang follows uh, Renfield to uh, uh, to the uh, ab old Abbey where Dracula has taken refuge. Uh, Dracula kills Renfield, and before he can actually finish the j job, though, on Mina, the sun has come up and he must take shelter. So Van Helsing and Harker able to stake him and free Mina from her spell, and everyone lives happily ever after. The fact that it's a very, it is happily ever after is kind, is one of the many interesting comparisons to Nosferatu and vampire stories in general. General, this is a creepy monster who has been feeding on people, but at the end of the day, our heroine gets to live, and our hero, they get to go off and be happily ever after and marry. Whereas in Nosferatu, Ellen dies at the end. Uh, it, it's a happily ever after. There is a cost to defeating the vampire. I mean, I mentioned that uh, you know this. We see this transition here uh, from monstrous of Count Orlok to the seductive Bela Lugosi Dracula. One's killed by beauty, the other hides behind it. But you no, know, neither is a sympathetic character. There is no complexity to these vampires. Uh, these are just evil creatures, and that's something that really distinguishes, I think, these early vampire films from, say, the werewolf films that we're going to talk about in a bit. They're not exploring the complexity of human psychology. They're not exploring uh, the complexity of morality like Frankenstein does. This is really just straight up about humans, how we respond to evil. And you get people like Renfield who succumb to it. Uh, Van Helsing in, uh, and then in Nosferatu, Hutter, and Ellen, they resist it. And then in Dracula, you get a whole different category of people like Harker and Seward, who are just in constant denial about the nature of the evil that is staring them in the face and, you know, standing in their parlor. And that's a pretty, remains a pretty powerful theme in vampires, I think, because it's easy to make them just straight up evil. These are people who, these are demons who feed in or, uh, on the living in order to live. It uh, seems more of a conscious choice than compared to some of the other creatures. Uh, that are the classic universal canon. Uh, but they both both of these films, though, at the end of the day, define the modern vampire, uh, either in the form of its monstrous version, like Nosferatu, 
uh, directly inspired the master in Buffy, the first season vampire villain from that show. Uh, almost every version of Dracula on screen since Bela Lugosi has been more the seductive gentleman. Uh, so Christopher Lee, Gary Oldman, they're just walking in Bela Lugosi's shoes. Uh, and hell, even Mel Brooks made a Dracula dead and loving it, which was a direct riff off the, off Bela Lugosi's film. Um, and, uh, interestingly, one, fi one final note, uh, about the legacy issue, uh, Nosferatu is a legacy that's an accident. It, like I mentioned, uh, this was an un, it was an un, uh, uh, unauthorized, uh, adaptation. And so the, this, this, uh, Bram Stoker's estate sued and got the film shut down. And it ordered every print destroyed, and one survived because it had been taken internationally for distribution. And so it was painstakingly copied and cared for by an early cult following. It's actually the, one of the earliest examples of a cult film. Uh, and that is the only reason we have Nosferatu, is that it was this devoted following of fans of this creepy vampire uh, terrorizing a German town. Uh, and it's guaranteed that it survived until the modern day. Uh, That's amazing. I had no idea about that with the movie. Yeah, it's like, I mean, we would have, I mean, either way, we would have had Bela Lugosi's legacy here, and we would have therefore indirectly have had Nosferatu, but the reason we still are able to have this very visually stunning silent film is largely just the devotion of horror movie fans and monster movie fans who wouldn't let it die. Uh, it's... Uh, a very it's perhaps fitting that the undead creature uh, film was kind of the undead <laughs> limping forward uh, through the century that followed yeah so I guess what really strikes me about these films is just the the performances of those two leading actors you know who are playing these titular characters you know not only did they have the right look for the characters but their performances, uh, kind of like you've referenced, are, are very, like, deliberate and very effective, uh, even if, you know, other parts of the films may have been lacking in, in certain ways. Um, but, you know, I, I love that, you know, Max Schreck famously, you know, is only seen blinking in the film, like, once or twice for Nosferatu, or that, you know, Bela Lugosi, you know, just all of his performance was just so polished and, and debonair it, that it... it even stands up to other, you know, great horror films from that same era that he was in, uh, like White Zombie. I feel like this was a, a stronger example of, of just how skilled of an actor he is. Oh yeah, uh, you get, and I think you see that in the moments where he, where Dracula breaks from that sophisticated mold, uh, because it is an act. Uh, like I said, it's like whereas Beauty kills the vampire in Nosferatu, it's what he hides behind in Dracula. And uh, you can see like when uh, Van Helsing notices there's no reflection, he asks for Dracula to help him with something. He, I have just seen a curious phenomenon, so curious I doubt my own senses. It's like anything I can do. And he opens the, this cigar box that has a mirror on it and Dracula just snarls and smashes it to the ground, suddenly breaking from that uh, debonair persona. And you can see Bela Lugosi uh, acting there on full display, not just because he broke it, but then as Dracula very painfully and forcefully forces himself back into that classy gentleman persona 
and just very stiffly says, My apologies, Dr. Seward. I dislike mirrors. Van Helsing will explain. And he walks out. And it's just this brilliant moment of acting because every everything else has been so measured and for this one moment you get to see the ferocity that's underneath it. It's just brilliant. One thing that I don't like about the films nearly as much as is you know kind of what what's been referenced that it is a fairly sizable departure from a lot of the key elements of the book uh, the book is one of my all-time favorites and so i'm kind of a purist that I, I i'm of the opinion that it really hasn't been well adapted uh to, to my satisfaction ever um and so it's but it's i think it's really interesting to see how i i felt like especially with dracula that the film adaptation, because it rolls so many characters together, um, it's one very short. It's, you know, just clocks in at, what, probably like 70 minutes or so. I feel like it definitely could have been a little bit longer to explore the, the original content more. And two, I was kind of just underwhelmed with uh, the performances of pretty much everyone besides Bella Lugosi. And also just, you know, because there's, you know, like any lack of like, there's such a, a lack of, I mean, I mean, part of part of me recognizes that like the pacing is, is very different at, at this point in time versus you know, kind of what we see in a modern film. But I, I have to admit that while I was watching it, there were parts where I was just kind of bored. And, you know, certainly my attention you know was brought back when when there were those you know amazing scenes like the mirror scene you reference or just anything where. Bella Lugosi was really kind of showing the height of his powers as an actor, but a lot of the other scenes, I just kind of didn't care. <laughs> and I think I think a lot of the pace, at least the pacing side, I think comes from the fact that whereas Nosferatu was directly adapting the material, uh, Dracula's direct is a, it's indirect because it is actually adapting it based on a play. So it's already one step removed from the book. Uh, because its source material is is uh, a stage version. And I think a lot of the pacing of the film, and it's definitely the way it is filmed, uh, it tends to be ensemble shots. The rooms in which they are filmed become are very much like a stage. And I think that's very clear as, when you watch the film. Uh, it's, it is filming it in the context of how do we, of, uh, how do we produce this for an audience. And a lot of the actors, even because they, that wouldn't, it's that woodenness that a lot of the actors have that on stage would not necessarily be bad because what they're doing is they're projecting out into an audience and having to be heard, uh, but comes across on film as just utterly wooden and lacking. Uh, also possibly just a case of it's the 1930s and they're still figuring out how to do talkies. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> and I would agree with Brett on that. You know, it's, there, it's, it's easy to look at these old films and kind of judge them and, I don't want to say judge, but maybe critique them on kind of what we're used to now. But again, like Brett mentioned, there were a lot of other factors going into the creations of these movies that may have been a factor in some of that boredom you see. That said, I mean, partially, I guess, because Bela Lugosi is so central to the film, I think it's still eminently watchable today. Uh, the a lot of the London people, the the Sewards, the Minas, the Lucys, they're not very... Yeah, they're flatter characters. They're not very well developed. But the movie is saved not just by Bela Lugosi, but by Renfield especially. I think uh, 
the guy who plays Renfield steals the show. Whenever he's in a room, he's just tortured and insane. Uh, Van Helsing is, uh, he's a little flatter than the other two, but he's still a, he still has great screen presence in his confrontations with Dracula. So I, I would, uh, this is, uh, of the Universal Monster movies, it is probably my favorite. Uh, which is one of the reasons that I'm the one talking about it. But I, yeah. I think it, I think it, it is certain, it is say the people who stand out in it save the movie for sure. That's totally fair. So I guess last thing want to hit on on this would just be you know kind of how you rank it in terms of uh, the screams and crowns. So how scary is it, and and how good is it as a as a film in general? Okay, For yeah, both uh, of the films. Yeah, so Nosferatu, I'd say, is six screams. Uh, it's still a creepy movie. Uh, the the German expressionists still make that uh, influence is still there, and it just makes everything kind of creepy in the movie. Uh, I'd give it seven crowns. Uh, if anything, I think it suffers more than Dracula from uh, this old, slow pacing of films. Uh, but it's still an enjoyable film if... Uh, I'm partial to silent films myself, so I I, uh, I very much enjoy it. Uh, Dracula, I would say, is only four screams. It's n- it's not. While Bela Lugosi manages some real moments of of creepiness, uh, it's not. It's not a movie. It is a movie that has survived for the iconicness of its monster and not the scariness of its monster. But that said, I give it a full ten crowns. It's one of my favorite movies. Uh, I think it's just Bela Lugosi acts it out of the park and it's just still a classic uh of uh cinema period all right and i guess i'm gonna just throw in my rating um so i've i've only seen clips of nosferatu i haven't watched it all the way through i'm gonna remedy that very soon uh but for dracula i'd probably give it three screams and i'm gonna give it seven crowns just because of the boredom that i mentioned though yeah, the the parts that I liked, I really liked. So it's it's kind of hard to to rate something like that when it's kind of a mixed reaction to it, like I I had. So for Nosferatu on my end, I I I would probably give it a seven screams. Uh, Nosferatu really inspired a lot of future demon movies, and I think his makeup is just terrifying. You know that that idea is very um prevalent nowadays still in horror and it it really i think stands to the the quality of the the horror um five is probably a crowns for me on that one and then for dracula again yeah it's not super scary i'd probably give it a four um but i think it's a classic i love the dracula movie so i'm gonna go with the six on the crowns all right well, so I guess let's transition into uh, another universal uh, monster movie uh, of right around that same period of time, Frankenstein. And I'm going to take the lead on this one. So Frankenstein, I guess I'm just going to come out, you know, as as stating, you know, very clearly, it's not a good adaptation of Frankenstein. Um and I believe it's pronounced Frankenstein for uh, Mel Gibson fans. <laughs> but yeah, so so uh, Frankenstein, uh, yeah, it, it didn't do a, a good job of, of adapting the source material faithfully. 
Uh, I, but I do feel like it does hit on some of the key themes and points of, of the original book. But that said, regardless of, of how well it adapts the source material, I personally find it to be a phenomenal film. Um, so I guess just the first thing that, that kind of really... I guess I'll just do kind of a, a basic plot summary. Dr. Frankenstein uh, wants to create life after death. He does so with Frankenstein's monster, and then Frankenstein's monster escapes and begins terrorizing the countryside, uh, largely inadvertently because he just looks kind of scary. Uh, from there, after a, an incident where he goes and tries to befriend a, a little girl who is being really nice to him but he doesn't you know know how to behave himself around her uh he accidentally kills her and that results in a uh, angry mob coming and hunting him down and ultimately burning down the windmill in which he is trying to hide from them in and that's 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 the i guess you know 10 second summary but what really strikes me about this film is is how i guess one how how eminently watchable it is um i i felt like it didn't suffer from a lot of the same issues that i had with dracula i felt like the pacing was more continuously i don't know something was happening and just the the performance of uh boris karloff is just something else you know, I, I I guess for you know I, I for most of my life I'd seen you know a lot of parodies of of Frankenstein. Young Frankenstein comes to mind specifically, which I think is a phenomenal at uh you know phenomenal parody that that does so much to very cleverly play off of the original source material. But you know a lot of times when you see Frankenstein's monster, it's it's you know very wooden and uninteresting and and you know just just some dude who's sticking his arms out and going a lot. Karloff has so much subtlety in his performance, uh, like his facial expressions. You can feel his his confusion and his pain and his know, just everything. It's it's such an, an incredible performance. Like I, you know, if if there were the Oscars back then, I think he should have definitely one you know best actor for his his performance because he is just so tremendous in that film so i guess other points i want to hit on um some some things that kind of surprised me about the film uh one there's just no uh there's no character named igor in it uh in that or uh in the subsequent film which i'm going to uh, touch on bride of frankenstein you know the the scientist's assistant is is not igor it's I can't remember the character's name actually, but yeah, that didn't come in until later, until I believe the Hammer film era. And and, and I, I will say that you know one of the weaknesses of the film is that Doctor Frankenstein is is kind of uninteresting. He just you know is very theatrically shouting, you know, oh like you know I'm gonna be this great creator of, and you know I I I'm gonna be God, and and that's true to the character but i feel like he kind of maybe overplayed it a little bit but i feel like any of the flaws of the film are, are just made up for entirely by boris karloff and and his incredible performance i mean it's boris karloff he's ugh. we don't have people like him anymore where did yeah. they go 
I mean, I say that every time I watch a film from this period of time. It's like, uh, where are our Humphrey Bogarts? Where are our Claude Rains? Hollywood, you you just need to shut shut up shop. You you're not doing any better than you've done back in these days. I I'm gonna be honest. I think Frankenstein suffers from that slow pacing issue. I think of Dracula is a little more personally, but uh, it's it's yeah. Boris is just he, he, every scene he's in is just interact. You're just brilliant, and more more than makes up for any of the, any of those old pacing issues. And for me, the Frankenstein kind of monster himself never really scared me. Like Nosferatu has that very intimidating presence. Uh, Werewolves that we'll be going into, you know, there's a lot of these transformation scenes that are pretty grotesque and horrific. (coughs) Frankenstein has never really scared me in that way. Yeah, I I would say that he's not necessarily uh, a scary character. Uh, for conventional reasons, he and and I would argue that really the monster of the film is Frankenstein, the Doctor himself. That's, that's a valid point. You know, because he is so self-obsessed and you know wants to prove himself as this you know god of a of a man that he creates something that he doesn't understand and doesn't really care that you know that suddenly there's this creature that's out there that is essentially, you know, mentally a a baby in a lot of ways in this incredibly powerful body. And so it just doesn't know how to control itself. It's, it's, I don't know. The character of Frankenstein's monster is just so tragic. Um, Yeah. I, I don't find him scary. I just find him really sad. Uh, because he he genuinely you know wants to uh, just find something to you know find some love or compassion in the world, uh, and and he finds that you know with with the famous scene with the blind man, where he you know goes and is is helping this blind man, uh, and then when the blind man's family comes, they all freak out, and you know he ends up uh, you know running away. Uh, and, and, you know, there's the, the fear of the fire and all that. But, yeah, I mean, he's he's afraid of everything and is just confused by everything. Um, I mean, Frankenstein is a monster, but also just kind of the way that people react to something other is also uh, one of the big monstrosities of the film. And so, yeah, it's definitely not a conventional horror story in that, you know, we're, we're not... It's, it's not like society versus a monster. It's basically that that society and science are kind of the monsters and the, you know, quote unquote monster is, is actually the most sympathetic character. Um, and so I guess kind of going along with that, you know, I, I find the, the subsequent film, the bride of Frankenstein really interesting. Uh, one, it, it part, partially just because of how the, the story's presented. Um, they kind of take a step back and are like, okay, so how are we going to have a sequel? Because it, at the end of the first film, it seems pretty clear that Frankenstein's monster is killed. But then they uh, decide to kind of, you know, play with with expectations. And so it starts out with a conversation between uh, Mary Shelley as a character and um, someone else uh, at the at the home that she's in, you know, and, and she's and, and they're like, oh, like, you know, I like your your last story was so 
uh, tragic and, and moving, like, what what else could possibly happen? And she's like, oh, well, let me tell you what happens next. And so then it's kind of like a, a frame story that's that's um, pinning in the the subsequent story where it's then that, you know, he, he survives and, you know, wants a mate, which does kind of also pull, pull from the source material. Uh, and so then he goes and he hunts down uh, Dr. Frankenstein and basically takes his uh, wife to be to be his mate. He, you know, he kills her and then uh, she is uh, revived using the, the scientific process that Dr. Frankenstein uses and becomes, you know, the the, the mate of the creature um, is, is what she's referred to in the credits. Uh, when she's not playing Mary Shelley, because it's the same actress. But basically, she is also just so horrified of Frankenstein's monster that she kills herself. So it's also a really depressing ending. Um, but I have to say that uh, Elsa uh, Lanchester, or Lancaster, um, however you pronounce her name, uh, her performance matches Karloff's in terms of just powerful subtlety, especially just with just like her, the acting that she does with her face, like her facial expressions is just amazing. But I, I mean, I find it really interesting because one Frankenstein is, is widely considered to be the first science fiction novel. It's, it's kind of the, the birth of, of that genre. And so it's, it's really cool to see how, you know, it, it, this isn't that, you know, we're dealing with, with monsters that have been around for a long time or that you know are, are arriving from natural means, but rather you know these are these are man-made monsters. This is the birth of, of the mad scientist, the you know kind of the the powers that that technology and science potentially wield, and and the horrible uh, impacts that those could potentially have on the world. Yeah, and I think that's kind of a good distinction. You know, we associate Frankenstein with all the other horror monsters, but I think in his birth, it's like what you mentioned. He's more of a, a science fiction story rather than a classical horror. Yeah, and I mean, there's definitely real horror there, but but once again, it, it really kind of boils down to the the horror is is looking at how we treat this other thing uh, that is essentially innocent, um, rather than, you know, from any of, of the specific monstrosity of, of the creature. Sure. I, I, I find it so interesting with uh, The Bride of Frankenstein. You mentioned that they took that somewhat from the source material, but of course, in, in the novel of Frankenstein, when he is being forced to make this bride for the creature, he never finishes it. He destroys it rather than finish it. That's what leads to the creature's murder of his fiance and remaining family members mm -hmm. uh in the book and so the movie takes that and asks what happens if he doesn't finish it and in doing so it creates this whole really unique and in its in its own right iconic story about uh what happens next uh in the story uh because uh you know it's like you said it's like the bride itself is terrified uh, of the creature is finds him ugly repulsive and that that i that completely unique storyline has pretty has held pretty true anytime people come back to tell this story 
Uh, I'm thinking most noticeably in Kenneth Branagh's mid-90s, uh, or late-90s, uh, Frankenstein adaptation. They, mm-hmm. they uh, squeezed in the Bride of Frankenstein story uh, and did that part. Even though they were very explicitly trying to make a movie more based on the book, they couldn't bring themselves to do that part of the story without it, that the creature himself must by that point be so atrocious that the bride will reject. Also, the bride was just re- in that movie was rejecting herself because it was like, what have you done to me, Victor? <laughs> but it's kind of, it's uh it's one of those interesting notions of, I think it brings it back this in many ways though it does bring the story back to this question of what she- Shelley was getting at, which is how, what happens when, we can't control what happens when we don't think about what our science can do. Uh, and I think that's a way of bringing it back is when the science, when it's like, all right, well, we've done this science and we've done this science and they can't, they don't even, can't even stand each other. It's like, you've created this terrifying mm-hmm. mixture of, uh, mixture of things. And I think the, I think in a lot of ways, the bride of Frankenstein brings it back to that notion about science. Yeah, and I, and I think that it's it's kind of interesting how, you know, because it is a, a departure from the source material, that it, it kind of has a, a sort of different conclusion, you know, that, that the monsters can't even stand each other. While in the original book, the reason that he doesn't finish making, you know, his, his creature a bride is because he fears what would happen. You know, he he fears that they would create basically a, a race of super beings that would, you know, essentially result in the the end of the human race because there would be a superior creature out there. Um, which I mean, one speaks to his ego. Uh, you know that he, that he he's such a great creator of of life that he made something better than even what God made. Um, but two, I think it's just you know it's kind of a, a different conclusion where you know he's saying, oh, like maybe maybe there is a limit to what what should be done while in the in the you know film bride of frankenstein i almost feel like it's saying you know maybe maybe the reaction of you know kind of or you know what what will result will kind of undo what has been done but yeah so i i guess should we launch into the the screams and crowns for this one fantastic so i would give this movie uh well so i guess i'm gonna give them probably the same rating uh, so screams uh, four. Um, there's some pretty intense moments, some pretty creepy moments, um, but as a whole, it's not especially scary. Uh, but then, as far as uh, crowns go, I'm gonna give both of them an eight. They're both really well done films. I feel like the cinematography is, you know, ahead of its time. I feel like the performances of those two lead actors is just such. Just on on such another level that I I can't help but uh, really really love both of those films. You know I I can't justify giving them an eight. I would probably go six as far as the crowns go. I think they're wonderful wonderful movies, but yeah, eight just seems really high for me. Um, as far as the screams go, though, I'd probably agree with you, though, around a three. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree on the screams of being three apiece, maybe four, uh, to uh, to Bride, for the Bride herself, bumping it up a notch. Um, 
I would probably only actually give Frankenstein a five. I personally find it to be, like I said, I think it falls victim to the slow pacing of the era, the movies of that era a little worse. Uh, but I'd give Bride, I think, at least seven uh, on the crown. I think it's actually a, the stronger of the two films. The cre- Boris Karloff's portrayal makes both movies so just fantastic. So even with Agreed. that, I will say Boris Karloff forever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it does have to be said, of course, that the voice of the Grinch, who, the narrator anyway, who the Grinch is still Christmas, is Boris Karloff. So we get to have him this entire time of the year from Halloween to Christmas. We can enjoy the performances of Boris Karloff. Yeah, and and if you want something a little bit lighter fare, then you can also pick up like Arsenic and Old Lace, which I mean is a dark comedy that features him kind of making fun of himself. So I forgot he was in that. <laughs> oh, that movie's so good. Classic. It's wonderful. <laughs> it's what I want to be like when I'm an old person. <laughs> a murderer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so should we launch into our last uh, set of universal classic horror uh, with with uh, the Wolfman? Yeah, so I did something a little bit different than both of you guys. Um, obviously, I did some research on the Wolfman itself, but knowing me, I really dived deep into kind of the mythos of werewolves and where they actually began and kind of where they started and where we are now with them. Uh, so I didn't dive deep into the Wolfman like you guys did with Nosferatu or the Frankenstein, so don't hate me. Um, something, though, that was fascinating and intriguing to me was, you know, we think of werewolves coming from this, not coming from this movie, but kind of their hallmark in cinema from the 1941 movie Wolfman. Uh, however, there were two movies prior to 1941 that really kind of laid the foundation for werewolf movies, and one of them was Lost in a Fire, so we don't have access to it. It was a 1913 silent film titled The Werewolf, um, but in 1924 there was a big fire at the studios where it was housed, and all the film was destroyed, which kind of blows my mind a little bit. I don't you know, you don't think of movies being lost to history nowadays, you know, it's kind of a, a foreign idea. Um, but after that 1924 fire, we got the 1935 movie, A Werewolf in London. And this was really kind of the first movie that ushered in this idea of this werewolf cinema, uh, which eventually led to the movie in 1941, The Wolf Man. And as far as the movie goes, it's it's not my favorite. However, I do have to give a big shout out to the guy who did all of the makeup, Jack Pierce, because the the special effects of the Wolfman himself are insane for the time. I mean, it's it's brilliant. It's brilliant. I don't know. Have you guys seen the Wolfman? Do you have any opinions on the makeup that they did? It's uh, it's fantastic. It's I mean, they that's they define. I mean, it's it's kind of like Bela Lugosi all over again. It's like everything, every werewolf since this movie is just doing Lon Chaney Jr. And so after the 1941 film, it kind of ushered in this idea of the werewolf and a lot different from vampires and kind of how, Brett, you mentioned earlier that they're just the epitome of evil. There was no real 
redemption for them early on. And then they kind of became this icon of nefarious beauty. Uh, and then even with Frankenstein, how he is this idea of playing God and the tragedy in that, Wolfman really kind of changed the werewolf in that it became this idea of Jekyll and Hyde, that there's this primal kind of rage that we all fight against and how damaging that can be when it goes unchecked. Um, and this kind of became a metaphor for adolescence and puberty and how we all kind of go through this primal transformation in our emotions. And if they're not kept in check, they can do a lot of damage. Um, and so a lot of movies regarding werewolves kind of deal with this idea of, I don't want to say split personalities, but the ability the exactly, duality of man exactly that, that humans can do really terrible things and not because they are supernatural but because we have this this extinctual animalistic kind of a rage sometimes when our emotions go unchecked which was really interesting to kind of dive into with a few of these other movies like ginger snaps which came out in 2000 which relates to two teenage girls who are going through puberty and the cycle of becoming a werewolf is not tied to the moon. It's tied to the menstruation period, which was a really fun kind of a twist to a story that's been done quite frequently. And another thing that is kind of interesting to go back to the adolescence, this really kind of broke ground with the 1985 um, mainstream Michael J. Fox Teen Wolf, which has been done multiple times. Um, and Teen Wolf, either I think you love it or you hate it, <laughs> but it really kind of broke ground and humanized the werewolf in a lot of aspects. You know, you you now have Twilight, which as much as I detest, really kind of draws from the principles that Teen Wolf provided is that it's not a curse as much as it is it makes me different, it makes me unique, and I'm going to run with that and own it. Um, and so that's kind of the cinematic history that I went to in with the werewolves. I know it's it's not nearly as comprehensive as what you guys did with, with your movies, but I really kind of wanted to dive in as well in kind of the origins of the werewolf um, because I am you know, obsessed with mythology and with the occult kind of stuff there. Um, and really there's, I, I couldn't find a whole lot of groundbreaking evidence and sources that stated this is where werewolves started. Uh, a lot of the Greeks had a ton of myths that revolved around humans turning into animals and turning back into humans. Primarily, there was one about a man um, named Lycaon, which is where we actually get the word lycanthrope, uh, which is another name for werewolf. He served Zeus a meal, which happened to be meat from a, a young boy. And so Zeus was very offended by this and turned him and his two boys into wolves. Um, and this is kind of where you start to see the wolf aspect come into things. And from there, it really just kind of snowballed. Every myth that you see there are going to be aspects where people are turning into animals and very specifically wolves. Um, there's Nordic folklore. It's called the saga of the Volsungs. It tells the story of a father and a son who discovered wolf pet 
pelts. And when you wore those wolf pelts, it allowed them to become wolves for seven to ten days, kind of a thing, depending on what source you read. And it really became a, a strong European myth to the point where you can find books about how to deal with werewolves. And also, we have modern-day diagnoses that talk about this crazy primal rage that really just kind of blows my mind that something so supernatural has become so relevant in modern age well i mean i mean it's just so grounded in in reality in a lot of ways you know yeah like people don't literally turn into wolfmen but they do i mean you know you do see people have you know these two sides of them that you know really makes it such an effective oh i'm trying to think of the, the best word you know it's such an effective like allegory for uh real life thing you know real life monsters i guess you could say so i i love werewolf mythology for that reason uh and i and i find it also really interesting that you know the you know we we have the classics you know we have have dracula by mary shelley or sorry dracula by bram stoker and we have uh frankenstein by mary shelley but you know really kind of the go-to classic novel uh is uh dr jekyll and mr hyde you know where it's not a wolf but it is you know a, an evil man and that's where you you know you said the phrase duality of man and i think that is really where the werewolf mythos pulls a lot from there's this dark kind of unseen power in humans that is tied to our animal kind of roots and left untouched it can do a lot of damage are you you in uh, in the wolfman in the 1941 uh that that's actually made pretty explicit by uh in a conversation between larry the wolfman and his father lord talbot who's played by claude rains who's probably the best supporting actor to ever live uh he says it's like oh of course I do. Of course I believe Larry. I believe it's a, he says it's a, it's a, just a metaphor for the good and evil that lives in each man. And he talks very much about how the werewolf's duality. He does, of course, doesn't believe in the werewolf till it's too late in the film. But, uh, <laughs> yep. Uh, but they make it explicit, uh, make that notion explicit. Uh, but I think the interesting thing about uh, the 41 Wolfman, though, is it takes it from it takes that and that's an important part of the film. But it's also, I think, a really a interesting just exploration of mental illness, because Larry spends most of the movie not sure if what's happening to him is real and feels very much like he's going crazy. Uh, and we know as the viewers that it's real, but he doesn't. And so it's uh, this real descent into madness on Larry's part over the course of the film. Uh and I think that's an excellent, excellent point to pick up on, because as you look through history, this idea of werewolfism is really intermingled with mental illness. You have like hypertrichosis, which is a genetic disorder which causes people to grow excessive hair. And before we knew what that was, people were associating that with werewolfism. Um, and then you have lycanthropy, which is, again, another very rare psycholo psychological, psychological, wow, I can't talk. Maybe I'm transforming into a werewolf as we speak. 
Uh, I don't think it's full moon tonight. <laughs> but it's a condition where the the patient feels like they're turning into a canine of some sort and we there's this whole spectrum of mental illness that was associated with werewolfism throughout the years uh so yeah brett i think that's a wonderful wonderful point to pick up on on the movie is it was kind of this beginning of mental illness versus kind of werewolfism I don't know if you are you going to talk about the more modern werewolf in London. Um, more or less that it's a fantastic movie. <laughs> I didn't have any with notes. amazing transformations. Yes, well, I think I think it picks up on the theme even further. Is because you can read a lot his his battle werewolf in a lot of ways as a PTSD story. Right. Uh, He's a vic. He and his he's he lose his friend dies and he is mauled in this terrible attack at the beginning of the film, and you can really at least to some extent I think read the werewolf his his werewolfism as the struggle to cope with the tragedy, uh, symbolically speaking. Yeah, well, I mean he's literally haunted by the ghost of his friend throughout the film. Yeah. So it's uh I I think it's something the werewolf stories that come. F- that, began to pick up on here in this film because i've i've seen the 1935 film uh werewolf in london and it's 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 not good uh uh, but it's does nowhere near anywhere this kind of complexity that you start to see in 1941 with the werewolf uh exploring it as a condition of we can talk about the human mind and human nature and, and mental illness i think it all goes back i think to the 41 film and that's really picked up on uh, from that point forward. And just a few more kind of tidbits that I wanted to throw out to our audience. Um, the, this idea of the, the silver bullet being the only way to kill a werewolf really had no place in the werewolf mythos until modern times. Um, all of the historical research that I've done really talks about either you wear the werewolf out until it turns back into a human which involves a lot of chasing and running, um, or you use herbal remedies such as wolfsbane to kind of keep the transformations in in check. This idea that silver cures a werewolf or can kill a werewolf is not something that originated with the myth itself. As well as this weird rivalry between werewolves and vampires, the research that I did really didn't indicate where this began or why it began. Um, the only thing I could find is that werewolves are tied to the moon, vampires are tied to the sun, and so somehow someone decided that they should become arch enemies. I think I think the answer to that question is someone in Hollywood, uh, roughly around this time. <laughs> Because uh, this is, in fa- uh, you know, we, we haven't really touched on this. We keep referring to these as the Universal Monster movies. But this is, aside from Marvel, basically only other successful common in cinema universe. Like, these movies do get all interconnected as they start to make sequels. And Dracula, The Wolfman, and Frankenstein were all appear in the same films repeatedly. And Dracula and The Wolfman tend to oppose each other. Right, because uh, Larry Talbot, despite his transformations, at heart a good person who is tormented by this curse, whereas Dracula is a evil demonic being who just wants to kill people. And I think, so, as far as I can tell, 
that's where it starts, is basically <laughs> with Lon Chaney Jr. and Bella Lugosi making some additional money in uh, some spinoffs of their franchises. There was a Greek myth that I found which talked about when a werewolf dies, sometimes it will be resurrected as a blood-sucking undead kind of monster. And so they thought that maybe they being the the people who did this research on this myth assumed that maybe that's where the connection between vampirism and the werewolves kind of began. This monster is known as a revenant in, in Greek mythology. Well, that's pretty cool. I So going back to the, the shared film universe thing, one thing I thought was just so interesting about that is that they had to kept like having retcons like, oh no, they didn't actually die. Oh no, they didn't actually die for this sequel. And so they had to do that a whole bunch uh, to make all of that work. Oh Lord knows it. Uh, the uh, my favorite my favorite of these movies that where it is actually not like I think it's I think it's House of Dracula that's the first one maybe where they start to cross over. I don't remember this point off the top of my head. But my favorite one where they do cro- all cross over is actually not a horror movie. It's Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Uh, which is a genuinely funny film to this day. Uh, and comedies don't tend to age well, but Abbott and Costello generally do. Uh, and there, it's hilarious. And you've got Bela Lugosi and Lon Chaney Jr. Uh, and it's, uh, it is not Boris Karloff, but the gentleman who took over the Frankenstein role from him. I can't remember his name. Uh, all in it, just acting their hearts out while Abbott and Costello are being, you know, their usual hilariously ridiculous selves. <laughs> And I think it's the best point in which they're all on screen together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, kind of from there, you know, we see that uh, the Hammer uh, series of monster films kind of tried to replicate that universal success and, you know, have having crossovers and multiple sequels and all of that. Uh, and we'll have to go into the Hammer films at some point in the future. But, you know, I, I find it interesting that, you know, even though those were relatively successful films, they didn't scratch anywhere near the, the level of success or, or fame as the Universal crossovers did. I do wonder how much of that has to do with the fact that, at, I mean, what, that's in the 60s, I think, when that happened, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah mostly in that. Yeah. Time you really, it's people, I mean, at that point, I mean... A lot of the people who were kids when Bela Lugosi and Frankenstein and their were terrified, you know, were doing their later films in the 40s and 50s. I guess, I guess mostly in the 40s. I think it eked over into the 50s. Yeah, they're the people. Like, so it's like, ah, you know, this Christopher Lee, he's he's a good vampire, but he's no Bela Lugosi. You know, it's you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, when they keep doing remakes today, and it's like everyone's like, why would you remake that movie? The first one was perfect. Because everyone grew up on that one. And I wonder how much that hurt the Hammer films. Is that, you know, basically everyone who was middle-aged and, you know, the people with disposable income were like, yeah, I grew up on Bela Lugosi. He's no Bela Lugosi. Yeah, been there, done that. Yeah, exactly. Whereas, like, now you could make a Dracula film and, you know, you have a little more freedom because because we're a long time since there was a great iconic Dracula. Apologies to Gary Oldman. Well... Maybe someday we'll get the Dracula film that satisfies me. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I saw saw an interesting take one time that says the reason it's never been adapted 
particularly well from book to screen is because it is a slow burn book. And there's just no way to turn that, the a letter-based slow burn book into a movie. And uh, I don't know if that is true, but I do wonder if that, if the format of the book makes it just hard to turn into a, to a movie. Yeah, I mean, I I would say that's fair because I mean, really, the closest thing that we have to, um, you know, a book with that format, you know, where it's it's made up of letters and diary entries, would be, you know, maybe found footage, and I don't know if that would translate particularly well into a Dracula film without, you know, modernizing it and all that, and and I don't feel like it really works as well in a modern age, so. I could see it. I that's actually. I think that'd be an interesting way to. That'd be an interesting way to modernize it. I think. Yeah. Uh, it kind of reminds me, kind of like American Horror Story in the uh, uh, Roanoke season, which was all found footage, uh, where the second half mm-hmm. of it was a found footage film, and the way they did it was by just making explicitly like, like whereas the first one, first part of the film of the season was all reenactment so like all the ghosts were kind of you know debonair and everything or whatever uh everything is just straight up horror on the found footage because it's like yeah no in real life this would be terrifying and i think that'd be a good if you ran with that notion i think you might be able to turn dracula into a properly horrifying film with found footage you just gotta leave bella lugosi at the door though (laughs) yeah all right, well, should we wrap this up, boys? All right, sounds good to me. Um, so I guess, Brett, is there anywhere that people can find you online that you would care to share? Or uh, any projects or anything like that you'd like to plug? Uh, not at the moment. Uh, best wishes to the dissertation that's finishing. But uh, at the moment, there's nothing nothing online at the moment. Uh, maybe stay tuned for, for later on, but... Uh, <coughs> And maybe look for me again if you'll have me back. <laughs> oh, definitely. We would love it. All right. So I guess uh, we can be found online uh, at Scream Kings Pod on Twitter, uh, Scream Kings Podcast on Facebook, and uh, patreon.com slash Scream Kings. Oh, and we also have our Instagram, which is also at Scream Kings Pod, which Max has uh, done a good handful of posts about demons on which was pretty sweet um i personally am also available on twitter at nj darkish and i am on twitter at crowley c-r-o-w-l-e-y finn p-h-o-e-n all right uh so i guess that's it um Thanks for listening. Thank you, everybody, and thank you, Brett. Thank you all for having me. Yes, many thanks, Brett. (laughs) Hey, Andrew. Hey, Maddie. Do you like horror movies? I sure do. Well, did you know that most horror movies are inspired by real-life horror? Really? Like what? Well, take The Shining, for instance. That's based on Stephen King's real-life addictions, or The Purge which could be our country any minute now. Oh, and The Strangers, which is based on a real-life murder. People should be talking about these things. Hey, 
Guys. Oh, oh, hey, Producer, producer Michael. Producer Michael, oh, hi. Well, I hate to break it to you, but somebody already is. It's you. <gasps> That's right. We are Friday the 13th, the podcast where we talk about horror in real life and horror in media, all from an LGBTQ perspective. Because we gay, y'all. We are proud members of the Legion Podcast Network, and we can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever your favorite podcasts are found. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Come along with us on this crazy journey, and as always, get slayed. Hi, I'm Chris. Hi, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers, a monthly podcast devoted to all things horror. Well, horror and film at least. And horror adjacent. Horror adjacent. Yeah. With a little bit of glitter thrown in. There's a lot of laser-guided karma in this movie. Yeah, because you can't do shit like that and not get some sort of comeuppance. They're uh, big business and big politics, right? Freiburg was big dance, but things are going to change. <laughs> big dance. <laughs> I think I turned off Tales of Halloween because I was already sick of just, like, trash and... <laughs> How very dare you? <laughs> I am a motherfucking Halloween enigma. I don't even know what to say. You don't have to make that vomity sound because all the children vomiting those snakes and scorpions and spiders will do it for you. (laughs) (laughs) Motherfucker. From classics to new favorites to camp, no film is safe from dissection and laughs. Check out the Film Flamers wherever you get your podcasts. Sweet dreams.